Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 134 for the second half of June 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Big Bang Denial. The Big Bang is the model that is used to explain what happened just after the origin of the universe. No more and no less. What happened before it, what caused it, and what happened to the universe after it are all different things, although people who argue against the Big Bang almost always conflate them into the same thing. This is similar to how anti-evolutionists will try to stump people with abiogenesis, the origin of life from non-life, not realizing that abiogenesis has nothing to do with evolution itself. Big Bang denial often takes one of three forms. People who just don't believe it, young earth creationists or creationists in general who don't believe it because they can't reconcile it with their divine being, or people just don't like some other aspect of cosmology and link it to the Big Bang, therefore saying that the Big Bang is wrong. I'm going to address each of these, not in that order, and then talk about the evidence for it. Uh, I still will not accept the fact that some minute little particle was compressed so much that it exploded into everything we have today in the universe. I, I, I just don't get it. Do you? Let's start right off the bat by getting this out of the way. The argument from personal incredulity does not hold any weight. Except for when I'm on Young Earth Creationist websites, the vast majority of what I hear and read with respect to Big Bang denial is that they don't believe in the Big Bang and they just can't understand how it could have happened or various parts of it could possibly be real, like how everything could be crammed into an infinitesimal point or other aspects that I'll get into. Without offering any evidence for why, they simply say it couldn't work because they don't believe it. That is not a good reason, and it's one of the more frustrating ones for me because it just shuts things down. Well, by the same token, though, it's also easy because there's simply nowhere to go with it, so you can just leave the conversation. One of the main tenets of science is to remove your own biases and beliefs from the system in order to determine the most likely scenario, regardless of whether it makes sense to you personally. The second most common objection I hear to the Big Bang is statements along the lines of, well, what started the universe? How could the universe have been so small? Inflation violates relativity. There are heavy metal old stars, but according to the Big Bang, there shouldn't be because metals didn't exist back then. Dark matter is fake, therefore the Big Bang is fake. These and similar kinds of arguments all have one aspect in common. They have nothing to do with the Big Bang. As I stated in the intro, the Big Bang is the cosmological model that describes what happened almost immediately after our universe came into existence. By almost immediately, I'm talking about one Planck time, which is equivalent to about 5 times 10 to the negative 44 seconds. That's the unit of time that it takes light to travel a Planck length in a vacuum, equivalent to roughly 2 times 10 to the negative 35 meters. It's a very short period of time, a very small length, but we cannot possibly know anything before that, at least with any current model or with any current physics. The distinction here, saying that the Big Bang describes what happened after one Planck unit of time versus from the beginning of the universe, is important because it means that the Big Bang model 
does not describe what started the universe. It does not describe how the universe evolved afterwards. It does not describe star formation nor heavy element formation. Those are all other cosmological ideas, and they have their own models, some more speculative than others. And while they are all tied together into a macro model of the universe, lack of understanding about any single one of them does not mean that all the others are false, nor does it mean that the Big Bang itself is false. To use one of my infamous contrived analogies, I'll describe what I did today. I went to bed around 10.30am, I woke up around 8.30am, checked email in bed, turned off my alarm clock for 9.30 and got up at 9 for a telecom that I'd forgotten about, did about mm, an hour and a half of that, went back to sleep until 1, worked for another few hours, wrote the podcast, had dinner, then recorded this episode. I don't remember exactly what I did from 10.30 until 11am. I don't know the exact neurological process that let me sleep. I don't remember how often I hit the snooze button or what time I set my alarm clock to get me up at 1 originally because I set the snooze button a couple times after that. I don't remember what I had to eat other than my recent dinner. All because I don't remember or know the specifics of those things, that does not mean that today didn't happen for me or that I didn't wake up today. Similarly, all because we may not know the specifics of certain cosmological processes or things that happened after the Big Bang, that doesn't mean that the Big Bang model itself is wrong. Next up are young Earth creationists, or even old Earth creationists in general. For the old world creationist, the only objection I've heard to the Big Bang is that it's man's attempt to explain what God did with a thought. If that's your worldview, nothing I'm going to say is going to change that. To be honest, that doesn't really matter to me. I do think that the science is perfectly reconcilable with an old-world religious view because you can simply attribute the Big Bang to the mechanism that your deity used, but that's your choice to believe it or not. For the Young Earth Creationists, or YECs for short, there are, of course, many objections. None really address the science nor the evidence for the Big Bang, which I'll get into momentarily. Rather, they tend to follow the classic YEC tactic of starting with the answer and then rejecting anything that conflicts with it. It's an argument from final consequences, in effect. Scientists say that the Big Bang happened, well, 13.8 billion years ago. Obviously, that's wrong, because Bishop Usher showed that the biblical chronology indicates the universe is 6,000 years old. Scientists say Earth wasn't formed until nearly 10 billion years after the Big Bang. That has to be wrong because the Bible says in Genesis that God created Earth on the first day. Or, Big Bang cosmology indicates there's no center of the universe, but the Bible is interpreted such that Earth is the center, or at least the Sun is the center, having moved there in 1992 when the Pope forgave Galileo. It goes on kind of like that. In the show notes at podcast.sjrdesign.net, I've linked to a few blog posts of mine from several years ago that I wrote about YEC claims about the Big Bang, if you're interested in reading them as well as the rebuttals. This is not going to be one of those episodes where I'm going to pick apart the YEC arguments, because they really don't argue with the science. They argue with the Bible as a starting point. It's really the same as the first kind of Big Bang denial. They simply can't believe it because they believe something else that they interpret as directly conflicting with the Big Bang models. This isn't a case like episode 112 where I could go through and show how a YEC was misusing the science to claim that Mercury is young, or comets from episode 3. It's just flat-out denial. 
So let's get on with what the Big Bang model actually suggests, and then talk about the four main pillars of Big Bang cosmology. Taking a page from the Reality Check podcast, I'm going to quote from Wikipedia on this because it's written really, really well. Extrapolation of the universe backwards in time using general relativity yields an infinite density and temperature at a finite time in the past. This singularity signals the breakdown of general relativity and thus all the laws of physics. How closely we can extrapolate towards this singularity is debated, certainly no closer than the end of the Planck epoch. This singularity is sometimes called the Big Bang, but the term can also refer to the early hot, dense phase itself, which can be considered the birth of our universe. Based on measurements of the expansion using Type 1a supernova, measurements of temperature fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background, and measurements of the correlation function of galaxies, the universe has an estimated age of 13.798 plus or minus 0.037 billion years. The agreement of these three independent measures strongly supports the Lambda CDM model that describes in detail the contents of the universe. That last line is a little bit beyond the scope of this episode, but it basically means that completely different methods of trying to figure out what the universe is made of pretty much say the same thing in the end. There are other parts of the cosmological history of the universe that are frequently tacked onto the Big Bang. As I've tried to make abundantly clear now at least three times, I disagree that these are considered part of the Big Bang model. They are consequences of the Big Bang, They are predictions in other models based on the initial Big Bang model that describes the initial stuff in the universe and what we think of happened during different epochs in the universe's history as a consequence of the Big Bang. It's because of that, though, that we can start to understand the four main pillars of evidence that the Big Bang actually did happen, and it happened in a way consistent with different models that describe each phase of the universe's history that happened after it. In other words... I can say, because I'm awake now, that means that I must have woken up in the past. By the same token, we can look at stuff in the universe today and say, well, because this looks the way it does now, something must have been in such a way in the past to let it happen this way now. The first pillar of the Big Bang Theory is the objective observation that at large distances, everything is moving away from us. This is measured primarily from the shift in light as it gets stretched out from its motion away from us. This has been interpreted to mean that the fabric of the universe itself, in which galaxies and everything else is embedded, is expanding and it's taking things along for the ride. This is also location independent and does not mean that we're at the center of the universe. From any observation point at large distances, every object is moving away. The reason that local objects like the moon or the sun or the galaxy or neighboring galaxies are not moving away yet is that the strength of this universal expansion is less than the strength of gravity keeping us together. But at larger scales, gravity is overwhelmed and the universe's expansion takes over. This has been objected to by some YECs as a pillar of the Big Bang model because they point out that it was discovered in the 1920s and 30s before the Big Bang model was theorized. I'll forego my typical decorum in this show and just point out that this is a really, really stupid argument. 
Just because I observed the sky to be blue, and only later learned that it's nitrogen in the atmosphere that makes it blue, that doesn't mean that the air can't have nitrogen because I observed the sky to be blue before I knew about nitrogen. It's, it's just really nonsensical. Moving on, the observation that the universe is expanding is a pillar of the Big Bang because, just as the Wikipedia article pointed out, if we see things expanding now, then if we run the clock backwards, stuff moves closer together. And one could reasonably hypothesize that at some point in the past, everything was crammed into an infinitesimally small point, a singularity. But we don't even need to go there, as the saying goes. We can stop three or four sentences ago and point out that the current expansion of the universe is precisely predicted by a model that says stuff started closer together and moved farther apart as it aged, as opposed to other prevailing models at the time that pretty much were steady state. The universe had always existed in its current form or some close variation of that. In other words, a currently expanding universe is a prediction of the Big Bang model even if the prediction or the observation of that prediction came before the model itself was developed. It's a piece of observational evidence that supports the model itself. While the Big Bang model was formulated in the 1940s and 1950s, one of the predictions made in 1948 that was made based on the Big Bang model that was being developed was that there should exist this thing called the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB, also sometimes referred to as the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, or CMBR. I tend to use the more archaic CMBR because when you talk with geophysicists, CMB means the core mantle boundary, and things can get very confusing very quickly when you're using the same acronym to mean different things. The CMBR was supposed to be a background radiation field that permeates the universe. It would have come about because the Big Bang model predicted that the universe's earliest phase was opaque, where it was so dense that not even light could move about without being scattered from free-charged particles like protons and electrons. If the Big Bang model were correct, then it would only be after the universe had cooled enough from this initial state that neutral hydrogen could form and photons could stream freely throughout the universe. This happened roughly 380,000 years ago. This process of neutral hydrogen forming is called recombination, and the photons being able to finally move around is called the surface of last scattering. This quote-unquote surface should show up as a steady, constant glow throughout the universe that would be practically the same in every direction. The only differences within it would be caused by recombination not occurring at exactly the same time everywhere due to tiny fluctuations in density and other things. Most people who are fans of astronomy know what happened next. 16 years later, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson were working with a microwave telescope and could not figure out why they were getting a persistent noise in their signal. It made no sense, so they asked some astronomy colleagues for help. And it was then that they were told of the prediction that there should be a persistent background noise corresponding to a temperature of about 3 kelvins, based on predictions from the Big Bang model. For their discovery, Penzias and Wilson earned the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1978. To be blunt, I've never really seen a YEC response to this, so I went to that bastion of critical thinking, Conservapedia, to see what they claimed. Here's what they wrote. 
the scientific version of events doesn't make sense when viewed from a Christian perspective, as it requires the universe to be at least 380,000 years old for the transition to have occurred. However, scholarly analysis of the Bible indicates the universe is around 6,000 years old, which is backed up by many observations in many fields from geology to astronomy. A possible explanation for the CMB is that it is the light, Genesis 1-2, from the moment of the creation around the universe. If the Lord had suddenly created the universe and flooded it with perfectly uniform light, electromagnetic waves, we would indeed see the remnants of this today, except for minuscule variations introduced by a fraction of the light being blocked by the Earth, which of course preceded the light, Genesis 1-1. So, there you go. The third pillar of the Big Bang comes from a prediction made in the 1940s, just about the same time the CMBR was being predicted. The consequence of the Big Bang would be that the universe was really, really hot early on, and as it expanded, it cooled. A prediction based on exactly how this cooling happened is that the universe, for all intents and purposes, was like a star. The entire universe, one big core of a star. Or at least it was from a period of about 10 seconds to 20 minutes after the Big Bang. During that 19 minutes and 50 seconds period, the entire universe was cool enough, and yet still hot enough, and dense enough, but not too dense, to allow protons and neutrons to combine to form deuterium. From there, they were able to follow a few different pathways to make tritium, which is hydrogen-3, helium-3 or 4, lithium-7, or beryllium-7. The nuclear pathways to make these different elements are extremely well understood in this post-atomic era after World War II in which we live. They depend on a few things like temperature and density and pressure. If the universe cooled in a slightly different way for a slightly longer or shorter period of time, you would get different amounts of all of these elements. What makes this a pillar of the Big Bang is that if we were in a steady-state universe, then as we look further back in time by looking farther away from us, we would expect to see heavy elements regardless of how far back in time we look. We don't. We see lighter and lighter elements. In the oldest stars, in the oldest galaxies, we see very, very few heavy elements, indicating that the bulk composition of the universe has changed over the past 13.8 billion years, minus 10 seconds, which is, at a fundamental level, what you would predict if the universe had a finite beginning. But beyond that, this is a pillar for the additional reason of the relative abundances of these eight different atoms and isotopes. As I said roughly a minute ago, the pathways to make these atoms and isotopes are very well known in atomic physics, and so we can, and they did, make specific predictions based on the Big Bang model for what the ratios of these elements should be after the universe was about 20 minutes old. Because of the universe's composition, and because it wouldn't change until the very first stars had seeded it with heavier elements, we can go and use telescopes and measure the relative abundances of these elements and isotopes by making very careful observations of the oldest stars in the oldest regions of the universe. And what's been found matches the predictions based on the Big Bang model. They're also independent of dark matter and dark energy, for those who are interested, which will be subjects of future episodes. What they didn't match, however, was the relative abundance of lithium-7. It was consistently measured to be about 2.4 to 4.3 times lower than what was predicted originally. So, what does that mean for the Big Bang? Nothing. 
What it does mean is that the Big Bang nucleosynthesis models were revised and based on new nuclear physics data for how protons may have interacted with each other in the first few minutes of the Big Bang, the new predictions much more closely matched the lithium-7 abundance. I've said it before and I'll say it again. That's how science works. In this case, we had a prediction based on a model based on a model. We tested that prediction. Much of it matched the observations some of it didn't. We were able to revise the model based on the other model and based on new data from other observations and how the predictions from the revised model, well, they now match the observations. That's how science works. We didn't have to throw everything out and say God did it 6,000 years ago. We had a perturbation on a model that can now better explain the observations. And we learned something about how the universe probably operated in the process. Now, I'll be honest about this fourth pillar. When I learned about it back in 2004 in my astronomy class taught by Professor Mijos, and that's a reference back to the last episode with Bob Lazar, I wasn't really convinced. Now, 11 years later, I'm coming back to it and relearning it, and I'm a little bit more convinced, but perhaps because it includes more things than Professor Mijos focused on because he's a galactic astronomer. But I still tend to like the first three pillars best. The fourth pillar of the Big Bang is that the evolution and distribution of galaxies, the growth of large structures, and the overall aging of the universe match what we would predict if the universe had a beginning. At a fundamental level, this pillar can be thought of as stuff today looks older than stuff in the past in ways predicted by an evolving universe that had a beginning roughly 14 billion years ago. One part of this is that stars that form today are observed to have heavier elements in them than the older stars. That has a lot to do with Pillar 3, but that's still part of Pillar 4. Another part of this is that as we look at the earliest parts of the universe, we don't see large structures of galaxies, only smaller isolated ones. Galaxy clusters and superclusters seem to be more recent, which is what one would predict as a consequence of a universe with a beginning that expanded from a point. It takes time for these large structures to form. This is also why when astronomers discover the oldest or the farthest supercluster, it comes with the obligatory tagline of challenge for the Big Bang. But these aren't fundamental challenges to the underlying theory. None of these are consistent with a steady-state model, which is pretty much the only proposed alternative. But there are some assumptions built into the Big Bang model. For example, we assume that the physical laws we observe here exist elsewhere in the universe, meaning that something like Big Bang nucleosynthesis, that third pillar, only makes sense if atomic, nuclear, and particle physics behave the same way 10 seconds to 20 minutes after the Big Bang as it behaves today, and that it behaved that way everywhere. Another assumption tied into that last statement is the cosmological principle, which states that on the largest scales, the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, basically meaning that it's the same. That way, an observation we make about galactic structure when we look at a certain direction should apply when we look in a different direction. And while those are assumptions, we have actually really tried to test them. So far, they've held to be true. Which also means that so far, the Big Bang is still the best model that we have to explain what happened right after the formation of the universe. The predictions and models that come out of it, like inflation, 
evolution of structure in the elements, behavior of light, and various other things that are built on top of it have also been shown to generally be true. But acceptance or non-acceptance of any one of them does not mean that the underlying concept of the Big Bang, that the universe had a beginning, is wrong. The primary logical fallacy for this episode is the one that I mentioned at the beginning, and the one that I've addressed before. The argument from personal incredulity. It's the equivalent of putting your fingers in your ears and saying la 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 la, which should not be confused with the song La 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 by Ramon Arcusa and Manuel de la Calva, which won Spain the Eurovision contest in 1968. The fallacy is simply that all because you personally don't believe something, that doesn't make it not true. On a personal level, with respect to science denialists, I see this argument as one of the most arrogant as well. If you have a non-scientist, someone who has not studied the subject, someone who has no background from which to make a judgment, saying that all the scientists who have studied it are simply wrong, that's a little bit arrogant, because they personally just don't believe it. In the example clip that I played at the beginning of this episode, it's basically saying that because a talk show radio host does not believe something, tens of thousands of scientists who have studied this in some form or another for over a century are wrong. Nah, nah not arrogant, not arrogant at all. There's another logical fallacy from this episode as well, and that's the appeal to consequences, something that I haven't yet talked about on the show. The appeal to consequences fallacy is where you conclude something based on a preferred outcome rather than logic and evidence. This is clearly the case with the Young Earth creationist arguments made against the Big Bang. The first feedback for this episode comes from my solicitation for help in identifying the logical fallacy left unnamed in the last episode. The argument that I was trying to find goes as follows. Person A says things 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Thing 3 is found to be true. Therefore, things 1, 2, 4, and 5 are also true. The context was that because element 115 was discovered and found to be real, means that Bob Lazar and everything that he said is true. I received a few suggestions, mostly coming from Steve, Frankie, and Rick. Both Steve and Frankie suggested that this was an example of the over or hasty generalization as a result of inductive, not deductive reasoning. Similar to the argument of, as Steve put it, I have a bird. It is black. Therefore, all birds are black. The Latin phrase for it is dicto simplicitur, maybe, although it also is known as where there's smoke, there's fire. While I generally agree that it seems like this could apply, I'm not entirely sure about it. It's usually applied to a conclusion about an event, rather than implying that all other things made by someone are correct, but perhaps I'm looking to be too specific in this fallacy, and it's just an example of the hasty generalization. But Rick suggested that it's an appeal to accomplishment or success, possibly the jumping to conclusions fallacy, or even better, the shoehorning fallacy. Rick liked the shoehorning fallacy the most because, as he put it, the argument is basically fitting anything remotely useful, no matter how marginal, to verify everything that Bob Lazar said. It's closely related to confirmation bias, but that's not really a logical fallacy, it's more of a heuristic. 
The shoehorning fallacy is often used by claimed psychics or Nostradamus people or various things like that. They're shoehorning vague events into something specific. Interestingly to me, the shoehorning fallacy was not on my diagram of logical fallacies, and so I've inserted it under red herring for future reference. The other piece of feedback relates to this episode's topic, and in a case of time travel, it came to me in February of this year. John P. wrote to show me an article from Fizz.org entitled, No Big Bang? Quantum Equation Predicts Universe Had No Beginning. I wrote back to John and said that, while the article and work looked interesting, it was just hypothetical. While that's incredibly unsatisfying, it's true, it's just hypothetical, where one group composed of a physicist from Egypt and another from Canada tried to reconcile quantum mechanics with general relativity. As we all learned in the movie Interstellar, we can't do that yet. While they tried to do it, they suggest that the Big Bang didn't happen. But this is one group, presenting one paper. Their colleagues haven't adopted it, and they don't quite seem to agree with it yet, and it does not explain the evidence that's been gathered for the Big Bang given their scenario. Therefore, the last half hour of your life has not necessarily been a waste listening to me. For announcements, there's another reminder that my release schedule is going to be a bit off for the summer 2015 months, but I am planning at least two episodes related to New Horizons and its Pluto system encounter which will be released in a timely manner. The first one will be the next episode, coming out July 1st, with Dr. John Spencer, who is one of the main people responsible for the geology and geophysics team, and is the leader of the team responsible for searching for potential hazards, new moons, or rings. We'll be talking about how the data are processed, and all the things that go into this kind of search and investigation. The other episode has yet to be done, but... Basically, I'm going to invite a bunch of the postdocs to my hotel or conference room, and we're just going to sit around a microphone and discuss the mission from our perspective. What we do, what we're in charge of, what it's like from our perspective to be involved with this kind of, well, unfortunately, once-in-a-lifetime mission. The episode is going to probably be released as a bonus episode because it has nothing to do with exposing pseudoastronomy. The purpose for it, though, is that throughout July, you're going to be hearing from people who have been involved with the mission since its beginning, and who've been involved in space missions since Pioneer or Voyager era. In other words, very senior scientists. They're the ones who are going to be interviewed, they're the ones who are going to be at the roundtable discussions, etc., etc., etc. They're the ones doing the press releases. They have a lot of perspective, a lot of context to put into this mission. But you're not going to be hearing from people like myself or others and what it's like working more in the trenches, as the saying goes. On Facebook, I've given the analogy from Star Trek The Next Generation. Every episode from TNG, except for one, was about what happened to the main cast of characters who were all in charge in some way of the ship. One episode, Lower Decks, followed a mission from the perspective of more junior officers, while I didn't like the episode when it initially aired because I was 10 years old, as an adult, I think that it's an interesting way to tell the story. And hopefully you'll appreciate that perspective for New Horizons. And it allows me to give you a perspective that you're not going to get elsewhere, which is something that I really wanted to do. I mean, I just don't want to repeat stuff that you can get from other people. Finally, the obligatory, don't forget that you can find me on podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo-Astro.
That wraps up this topic for the 134th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. And if you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can send me an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice like Stitcher. If you liked it, then also tell friends, family, and random people that you'll never meet in real life unless perhaps you're attending a Plutopalooza party. That's hashtag Plutopalooza. 